0: and exhale through your mouth sit back and close your eyes gradually release the tension starting from your toes working up your legs to your pelvis and from your fingertips slowly up your arms to your shoulders the stacking benjamin show no matter how bad it gets ...is your favorite podcast. I will count backwards from three, and when I snap my fingers, you'll be overcome with delight at hearing the start of this episode. Three, two, one.
1: Live from Joe's mom's basement... It's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is National Bosses Day. So I think it's appropriate, right at the top of the show, to take a minute to thank Joe's mom for being the bestest boss a guy could have. Trust me, that woman is. Bossy, she's really good at it. So, because there can be no bigger star today, we're just going to dive into a huge, expanded, four-big headline show. We'll talk about a couple who retired abroad, and it didn't go according to plan. Another New York Times piece asks if putting money in your 401k or IRA will make the economy not go as planned. And we'll cover a story about a big college whose Benjamin stacking didn't go as planned. It's starting to sound like somebody needs a better plan. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener calling all the way from Germany. And, yep, we'll still save time for my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who think they're the real bosses around here, but you and I know they're just puppets. Joe and O J J J J G.
0: There is no boss like mom. I don't think for a second you and I thought we were in charge here. Did you?
2: I kind of feel like I'm always in charge. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gotta be honest. Well, it's nice though that you defer to mom. Because, and if I'm not, it's only by choice. You know, I listened to uh, Norman Schwartzkopf speak once. And it was storm and normie. Yes. It was a powerful speech that he gave, but he said, he talked about how there are the official leaders in any group. He said, but then in any group, there's that one person that if they don't do it, nobody's doing it. And that is the real leader. Like they, they might not have the bars on their chest. They might not have the title. But that's the real person. And I remember at the time in our practice, Lori was that person. If we were sitting in a team meeting and Lori didn't like what I had laid out, even though I was the official leader, we weren't doing it. You weren't going to get it done. I would say definitely that could be you, but that more likely is mom. She's like, yeah, we're not having a party down there. No, not going to happen.
2: And then we try to sneak a case of beer down anyway.
0: <laughs> and a you, carton of marble lights. And you know how that goes goes well every time. Uh, Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday on the podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. Across the card table from me is the man who thinks he's in charge, OG. I thought we went through this. I don't think I am in charge.
2: I am in charge.
0: You're going to have to remind me 15 times. Uh, you can be in charge of the bookkeeping. By the way, to help you out, we will thank HoneyBook for supporting Stacky Benjamins. You run your own business like OG does. You're used to doing it all. OG's used to doing it all around here. I'll tell you that. If you're struggling to get through your to-do list, HoneyBook can help. Go to HoneyBook.com SB for 50% off your first year. Also, big thanks to masterworks for supporting stacky Benjamins masterworks first art investing platform that allows you to invest in the world's most valuable paintings, whether it's Andy Warhol Banksy, you pick the art we'll explain a little bit more later on in the show, how that works. But if you want to get started head to masterworks.io and click the toggle that tells them that stacking Benjamins sent you and you get to bypass their waiting list. That's masterworks.io for more. We got a great show today. The guests are people that wrote these four headlines. We've done letters episodes. We've never done a headlines episode. Man, we got some great ones. OG sent in. Actually, you did do a lot of work for this episode. You sent us like uh, half the headlines we have today. You must be exhausted. Just like always, I do over half the work. So Over over half, okay. yes. Uh, let's. <laughs> I'll leave that alone, and we'll get this party started.
2: Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines.
0: We had several people send me this piece wanting us to talk about it. This uh, particular article is from Planet Money, but we've seen this everywhere. In the mid-2000s, Michael Burry smelled trouble in the housing market. Remember Michael Burry? Yeah, he
2: was uh, Batman.
0: He was Batman. And he's about to be in that Ford versus Ferrari movie. I can't wait to see Mm -hmm. that one.
2: That one does look pretty
0: good. That that looks incredible. But Michael Burry is the guy that Christian Bale plays in the movie, the big short famous doctor, Dr. Michael Michael Burry. Burry. Yes. That's Uh, like
2: probably one of the best lines. Are you telling me that Michael Burry thinks that uh, Dr. Michael Burry? Yes,
0: he does. (laughs) Mid two thousands. He smelled trouble in the housing market realizing that big banks were packaging shady subprime mortgages and reselling them as surefire investments. He concluded it would lead to a spectacular collapse, made a huge bet against the market and ultimately tons of money. His story dramatized in the book, The Big Short by Michael Lewis. And of course, then played, as I mentioned earlier, by Christian Bale in the movie. Burry recently told Bloomberg he sees another massive bubble happening. This time, he says, it's in index funds. Instead of relying on financial experts to actively pick winners and losers, index funds buy everything in a market, passively going up and down as the entire market goes up and down. Saving for retirement, good chance you're invested in at least one of them. 1995, Index funds represent only 4% of the total assets invested in equity mutual funds. By 2015, that had jumped to 34%. And there's now over $4 trillion in passive funds indexed to the U.S. stock market, more than the market cap of Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Google combined. The piece goes on that index funds make a persuasive offer. Don't pursue the expensive and risky strategy of buying and selling individual stocks, don't pay brokers or mutual funds big fees to move the money around for you. Instead, just park it in these passive money makers, which offer lower fees, diversified risk, and as the data is made clear, better returns over the long one over the long run. Here is why Barry says. Here's why Burry says. Oh, gee, it's too good to be true. By the way, the piece remarks that he's not alone in expressing these concerns. The price isn't right. Actively buying and selling stocks and bonds provides a service to the market. It's called price discovery. If something's overvalued, traders sell it. If it's undervalued, they buy it. That moves the price of the asset. And it's the crucial mechanism to make sure the price is right, signaling its true value. But index funds don't really discover prices. Investors just dump money into these investments, which mindlessly hold stocks and companies whether they're doing well or not. Burry believes the fall of active buying and selling has led to overvaluations and he's predicting a crash in the value of the large companies held in index funds. I just don't know what the timeline will be. Like most bubbles, the longer it goes on, the worse the crash will be told Bloomberg. He's now investing in small companies, which he says are often ignored by index funds. I guess let's start here. He brings up an interesting dilemma, which lots of people have talked about. In fact, even before he died, John Bogle, when people asked him about this, when he was giving a speech one time, somebody asked him this specific thing, is indexing going to become a big problem for the market? Remember, remember what he said? He said, yes, it will be. He said, it's a long way off though. And he remarked that we, at that time, were maybe at 30% index funds or 35% now. Think it's a big problem. It's an interesting
2: observation that the I was kind of wondering where he was going to go with this on this piece because I was trying to figure out, is he going to say that the price of the ETF is priced incorrectly, which is kind of funny because it's just the amalgamation of all the other pricing. But I think what he's saying is, is because so much money is going into indexes or index funds, they have to go out and buy stuff. So they're not buying it because it's a good thing. They're buying it because they have to, which is making the price artificially higher. Is that kind of how you read that? How you understood what he said? Yes. Yeah. You know, interesting take on it. I don't think that's a thing, but okay. I also disagree with the nobody buys small cap index funds. There's a whole bunch of those too. So, wow, he's a he's a pioneer.
0: Well, there's two things I thought about that. Number one is to get away from index funds and a potential blow up, you have to do what he's doing, which is go into other asset classes, right? You have to do that. Because if you go to even to an active fund and invest in large cap the problem that you have there that you know well is the prospectus i mean unless you're in a hedge fund where the manager can do anything that they want and that can be super scary (laughs) uh Uh, The prospectus makes it so that the money has to stay in, let's say it's a large cap growth fund. You've got to stay in that asset class. The manager doesn't have the right or the ability to move money around. They'll have a huge lawsuit on their hands if they do something different than it says there. So the prospectus kind of makes it difficult for that manager to do anything, which will save your bacon. You have to find a different asset class.
2: I think the biggest thing with index funds in and of themselves is the fact that Consumers have removed the smart portfolio managers from their portfolios and replaced them with themselves. The myth is, is that the consumer is buying a fund and holding it. But we know from inflows and outflows of data, they're not doing that. They're taking a passive product like an ETF and they're putting money in it. And then they take that money out, and then they put it in something else. And then they take that money out, and they put it in something else. So they're actively trading the passive thing. And we can see this globally. And it's funny, because everybody I talk to, of course, no one does that, ever, that I talk to. Probably because they're our listeners, which is good. But I think the biggest issue when it comes to this, or the biggest detriment, I guess, to the normal investor, is that that whole large-cap growth U.S. S&P 500 fund... BS, the worst thing that's happened is that that's actually been right over the last seven years. And we're starting to get to the point now where people like me are having to almost remind people about the idea of diversification. You have to have something that is underperforming by definition. Otherwise, you're not diversified. And on occasion, people will remind me, clients will remind me and say, hey, uh, that's a piece up 18% this fund I got's down four, you know, what's up? And and it's like, well, yeah, that's an international position. That's going to do something different than the S&P. You know, you look at that, uh, we call them a quilt chart, right? That ranking of best asset classes and a lot of different fund companies put that out. You can Google. It looks
0: like a periodic table.
2: Periodic table, sure. And almost every one of the last seven years, large U.S. companies, so we would call it the S&P 500, have been in the top one, two, or three. And so that strategy of put all your money in the S&P 500 has paid off, which is the worst thing imaginable. Because when it stops paying off, and it will eventually, this is the one thing I do agree with this guy on, is that yeah, we don't know when it's going to go down. I don't know if there's a massive correction coming or if that's just the economy changing. But we know that there's going to be ebbs and flows and, and ups and downs of different asset classes the average consumer is going to look and say, oh my gosh, this thing that I have isn't doing good anymore. Now I need to get rid of it. And now I need to go buy this other thing that's doing good. And then that won't do well. And now I got to get rid of that. And once we introduce a little bit more volatility as it relates to what is doing well, the average consumer's return is going to trend back down, which already, by the way, according to Dalbar, is south of 4%, the average person. So when you start introducing a little bit more shucking and jiving, so to speak, when things are a little bit more volatile than they are now, People are gonna and you're going to see the average person's out. return go down. So it's so hard to just stay the course. It's so hard to say, we are going to think of this over the next 30 years and be diversified and have small companies and have large companies and international companies and brand new countries and you know all of those types of investments. When you look on the news and it's like, the s and is up again, 20%. And you're like, damn, I should just put all my money in that because that's killing it. I should have all my money in Amazon.
0: Chasing returns, right? Isn't that what they call it? Chasing returns. Yeah. Always always a bad idea. Chase your goal, not your return. There's a second piece. I think that that part is largely actionable, being able to diversify and make sure you have money in different asset classes for when things don't work the way they've worked the last several years. Second half of this, I don't know how actionable this is, but I find it really interesting. This subsection is called a specter legal scholars, Lucian Bebchuk and Scott Hirsch recently published a working paper called the specter of the giant three. And they talk about Vanguard, BlackRock and state street, which have the biggest chunk of ETFs. And the issue with these three OG, because of the fact that it's not managers and it's not performance, they're selling something you can buy anywhere because they were able to establish market dominance and they have more assets than other firms have. This piece makes the note. And actually later on, uh, it makes a note by lots of people. Another group of scholars, Eric Posner, Fiona Scott Morton and E. Glenn Weil argue that this dynamic is dangerous in the marketplace because normally what happens like banks get big fintech companies come along, right. And they start disrupting little pieces. And then the big bank either has to buy them or they're disrupted. I mean, you always see this in a capitalist society that this, I mean, that's the nature of the beast, but here because this is a commodity and they establish these leadership positions, it's incredibly easy for them because they have massive assets to continually charge less and less and less than any smaller competitor. Like the chance that these three will be disrupted by anybody in the index market is virtually zero. Like if they don't grossly screw this up, it's going to be three companies that you go to for your ETFs. This piece says
2: another side of that, that I've heard as a downside is that they have so much voting power when right. it comes to the proxies and stuff, that's, you know, a, the,
0: that's also in here, and I forgot to I forgot to do that. These three companies end up being the largest shareholder in most of the yeah, big companies lots of in these America. Companies,
2: right? Yeah, and so they've got a big, some big sway. I am less concerned with this, and I'll tell you why. Because the market figures out a way to disappoint the greatest number of people, and so what I think might happen here is we're going through this period of time where. People are transitioning money from active management to passive, but they're not doing it because of the active versus passive. That's the blanket that they wrap themselves in. But the selling point on it is it's just cheaper, right? Yeah. It's just this is 10 basis points. This is 0.1%. This thing is 1%. I understand that one is greater than 0.1. And then there's some other stuff that I should consider. Like that's, that's like how the, the kind of the entree into this is, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the price of active management come down and there will be a period of time when the passive funds and even, you know, everybody loves or hates on Vanguard, depending on where you're at, but they have just as many active managed funds as they do passive people. They kind of miss that. They're like, Oh, I'm, I'm indexing. No, not really. Like half their stuff is active. It's just you're low costing. That's actually what you you're mean to say.
0: Lo- you're low costing. <laughs> which is good. <laughs> yes, you know.
2: absolutely. So I think what might happen here is you're talking about large U.S. companies, talking about the S&P 500 fund, whatever. So let's assume that that actually takes a crap, right, which it probably will someday. Not through any fault of BlackRock's or Vanguard's or Fidelities or whomever's. It's just the market goes down. And there's going to be some active managers out there who are going to smoke the index, just like they always do. Every year, there's some funds that do better than others, right? We know by definition, index funds are going to get the average return. So there'll be some that do worse, some that do better. And the ones that do better are going to figure out that if they charge less and say, we do better, that's going to attract assets. Because right now, I think the active managers especially the big companies I'm going to pick on, I don't know, American funds, let's say. They're not insanely expensive, but they're more expensive, right? You know, their large U.S. company fund might be 0.8% cost instead of 0.1%. And when you're comparing them side by side and you go, well, this is pretty close to the same in up and down markets, what the hell's the difference? You know, we've talked about a lot of times the further you get from something that's common, say the S&P 500, the more you get to small international emerging market companies, like the more likely it is you're going to benefit from active management. It's very expensive right now still. So that's going to start coming down in cost, I think. And and when there's this big shift in market cycle and something else does well, people are going to naturally look and everyone sorts their investment research by one common thread. What do you think it is?
0: One-year return. You got it.
2: That's exactly right. You're going to go like, uh, let's see, what do I need? Click. You're going to click that little top bar that says one-year return, and then you'll click it the wrong way, and it'll show all the negatives first, and you'll go, no, that's not what I want to do. And you'll click it again, it'll go like, oh, that one, Plus 18%. Yes. Because what other research is there when you're on your 401k provider?
0: I used to think that, by the way, it was uh, Morningstar. Uh, I mean, I was going back and forth between stars and how many stars a fund has and that, but, but it's funny, since... Well, we started this podcast. Like, I hear a lot less about Morningstar in the retail sector than I did when I was an advisor. Like, I don't see the number of people going to Morningstar that are retail investors. Like, I mean, so many people don't even know what Morningstar is. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, when I made the switch to financial media from financial planning, big surprise to me because because when I was a financial planner, I flipping lived on Morningstar. Like, well, I knew, but
2: you were also an active manager, and you had to true. at that point in time use. All the data like this has a higher alpha and this is a lower beta and this has the standard deviation is this like you had to come armed with that data.
0: I'm back at that day. They were talking about when ETFs were 4% of the of the the world, you know,
2: it's an ETF. That's true. And and the commissions on those. That's what people forget. It's like you could buy and sell mutual funds all day long for free. But if you wanted an ETF, it was going to cost you 40 bucks a trade in the beginning. you know, yes. in the early 2000s, yes. that's was. Welcome
0: to Joe yeah. and OG's old guy stories.
1: Remember back <laughs> in the day? I remember back in the day. Yes.
2: Yeah. You know, there's a time and a place for the different types of investing. And the closer you are to like an ubiquitous type of investment, like an S&P 500, probably the lower cost you should be. But the, uh, well, definitely the lower cost you should sure. be. But, uh, or the more passive, I mean. The further out you go in that spectrum, you know, we talked about masterworks, That is a very unique, esoteric investment. It's right for a very specific investor. So the more you go out into diversification, the more likely it is it's going to cost money and the better you'll be rewarded by paying that money. So my two cents.
0: Yeah. Thanks, everybody who wrote us about that piece. Lots of variations about what uh, Dr. Burry said, Dr. Burry's comments our next headline comes to us from uh, NBC News. American retirees in Mexico say their life savings vanished from a Mexican bank. We hear a lot, OG, lately about retiring overseas or retiring in different countries to lower your cost of living. It uh, turns out you can get swindled in other countries, too. Who knew?
2: This is a tough story.
0: Not long after Kathy and Jim Mackear retired nine years ago, they left San Diego for a new home along the cobblestone streets of this vibrant mountain town, four hours northwest of Mexico City. We'd been on vacation to San Miguel once and loved it, Jim Mecker, now 72, said. San Miguel de Allende is famous for its colonial architecture, bustling art scene, mild climate, and low cost of living, been a magnet for American retirees and more than a thousand U.S. expats now call it home. The mac ears sold their house in the U.S. and used the proceeds to begin building a new house in Mexico. But their retirement dream turned into a nightmare in December of last year when they suddenly found themselves unable to pay their contractors. Their story may send a chill down the spines of more than one million other U.S. citizens, many of them retirees who live in Mexico. The life savings they'd entrusted to their local banker more than six years had all but disappeared. I was speechless, said Kathy McEar, 67, recalling the moment she found out she had roughly 40 cents left in her account. It just gives you a sense of ultimate betrayal, loss, horror. But the MacGurs weren't the only ones. NBC News spoke to nine American families who say Marcella Zavala-Taylor, a former banker with Grupo Financiero Monex, had gained their trust only to disappear after they discovered money had gone missing from their personal accounts these families who estimated losses more than $7 million all say they were blindsided by what happened. NBC News has chosen not to disclose how much money each individual said they lost over concerns they expressed about their safety. And it turns out, OG that part of the issue here is that the people had not been checking their bank statements closely because this particular banker had been siphoning off their money a little bit at a time over the last number of years.
2: Yeah, this is less of a story I think about Don't go to Mexico, right? because Mexico's a great place. And more of a story, I think, of you still have to be in charge of your own stuff. And you can delegate the day-to-day tasks. You can delegate strategy and responsibility. And you can delegate planning and implementation. But ultimately, you have to be the one that's in charge. Ultimately, you have to be the one that's in control. I always go back to the trust but verify comment. We had a client a couple of months ago who expressed a fair amount of concern about, like, I've never done this before. (laughs) You know, all of my money's always been in this one place, and I don't know how any of this works. And I think it's really important to recognize that there's a lot of safeguards built in as long as you use those safeguards correctly. Like third-party custodians, right? Your money has to be at a different place than your banker or your advisor. In this case, the banker works for the bank. but Yeah, Monex. But in our context, we would think never write a check out to the person who's helping you with your money. Like, hey, just send the check to me. My friends call me cash. No, 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 no. Your check goes to Fidelity or your check goes to TD Ameritrade or Vanguard or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, shouldn't be writing checks out for investments directly to your advisor, or to ever. a banker. You should yeah. never, yeah, you should never, ever,
2: ever, 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 never in a million years do that.
0: I think the thing that these people did incorrectly, because I don't think that that happened, their banker had access, obviously it was an employee of the bank, so they had access to the account. Uh, they said they got statements via a runner. Clearly they didn't check the statements closely. That's not as egregious I think as not knowing Mexican law when it comes to their bank protections, because according to this piece, 45 out of 50 complaints Monex received have been resolved. There were still five left out of 50 associated with this banker that were in negotiations. And by the way, they also say that, while it's all private, how much money these people got back. It looks very unlikely that they got hundred percent of the, of their money back. They got some money back but they didn't get all their money back. Right. I mean, in in the United States, there are very strict protections and other countries have protections also, but they're different. Mexico's are going to be different than the US. And I think going to any country, if you're going to live there, understanding what protections you have with your bank, I think is a crucial piece of investing money in any environment.
2: Yeah, of course it has to be. Ultimately, you have to decide where is the best place. And I know like a lot of Countries will help with tax incentives and things like that. If you bring capital into the country, if you're going to invest into the country, so to speak, whether it's building a home or a business or something like that, that helps offset some tax liabilities uh, in some cases. But you have to weigh those against the safety and security, not physical safety and security, but the safety and security of of your money.
0: Well, lots of takeaways. But before we get to those, got to say a big thanks to HoneyBook for supporting Stacking Benjamins. You know, when we first started this business, the one thing we didn't think about was all of the business of doing business, like all the administration tasks, like drafting proposals, uh, creating contracts, tracking down payments. That was not a part of the Stacking Benjamins vision, was it? And if similarly, that's not the big part of your vision, well, you need HoneyBook, HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. HoneyBook makes it simple to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track and makes you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, MailChimp, Gmail. It puts everything together and makes your business runs so that you can spend less time working on your business and more time working with clients and doing things that actually move the needle for your business. You know what those things are that make your business go all the other things HoneyBook helps you with those right now. HoneyBook's offering stackers 50% off when you visit HoneyBook.com slash SB payments flexible. And guess what? This applies whether you're going to pay monthly or annually doesn't matter they're not going to try to upsell you go to honeybook.com/sB for 50% off your first year you're welcome that's honeybook.com/sB Our next headline headline number three rare headline number three comes to us from The Wall Street Journal. Harvard gained 6.5% in muted year for university endowments, the world's largest university endowment, as well as the average school lagged behind the S&P 500 in fiscal 2019. This is written by Don Lim and Juliet Chung. Harvard University's endowment posted a 6.5% return in fiscal 2019, reflecting a tough year for many U.S. colleges. Harvard's return beat the average for large school endowments, but like many universities, trailed the U.S. stock market the muted showing of the typical endowment is the lowest yearly return since 2016 and bodes new challenges for universities at a time of ultra low interest rates. Universities rely on their endowments to fund everything from student financial aid and faculty salaries to the construction of libraries and sports facilities. Big schools delivered 5.8% returns on average for the year ended June 30th. According to the preliminary tally of schools of more than a billion in assets, tracked by investment and consulting firm Cambridge Associates. Many of Harvard's peers haven't yet publicly released their endowment results. The S&P 500, meanwhile, over that same time period, delivered a 10.4% return, which includes price gains and dividends. Oh, gee, big universities uh, struggled this last year.
2: I think we have to get rid of the, when compared to the S&P 500, you know our first article we talked about how there's so many different asset classes and if you're cherry picking the top one every time compared to the emerging markets index compared to international funds like whatever is number 1 you're always going to trail if you're diversified you have to
0: by definition you have to trail it otherwise you're not diversified it's so difficult when the one index that every stinking person that knows just enough to be dangerous follows is the one. that's one of
2: the ones that they put on TV. Right. Now it's like,
0: it's, it's the one that you're trailing, uh, later on in yeah. this wall street journal piece, uh, the authors write institutions weren't rewarded. They weren't rewarded for diversifying beyond us equities to reduce risk. Which is what we were just talking about earlier, said Margaret Chen, head of Cambridge Associates Endowments and Foundations practice, quote, the hard thing for these institutions was that it was the right thing to do, she said. So Harvard got their butt kicked and it was the right thing to do.
2: That's the message. And, and actually, applicable to everybody.
0: What's actually funny is I just even I just even fell into the trap myself. I said they got their butt kicked. They really didn't get their butt kicked. I mean, they still posted a six and a half percent return. Not a bad year.
2: Well, it might've been under what their projections might've been, but you can't be upset by having a diversified portfolio and then having it do what it's supposed to do, which is, Hey, I've got some of this stuff. It did really well. I got some of this stuff. It didn't do anything. I got some of this stuff. I got my face kicked in. You know, that's, that's the idea of diversification and, I found that this piece in particular, that quote right in there to be applicable to every investor, you're generally not rewarded for being diversified. You're rewarded when those asset class performance issues change, when it stops being large U.S. companies and starts being international companies, and you have both of those things, that's when you're rewarded. But you're only rewarded that moment, and you'll never be rewarded for being diversified You'll never be able to stand up with your portfolio and say, well, yeah, the S&P did 20, internationals did 10, bonds did three, I did 76, yay! Because if you do that, that means that you were ultra concentrated in something, right, you made some swingin' bet, and you might've got, you might it might've paid off. This is no different than what I said at the very beginning about everybody putting their money in the S&P. The worst thing that's happened is that that's actually worked for the last half decade for a lot of people. And now you've got all these people, all these investors that have all this money in the S&P, and they've been right. They haven't had that taste of diversification is the best policy. And so just remember the quote from this uh, wonderful person who says, who says it way better than I did. It's right? – that.
0: It's like when I took uh Nick to Vegas. Remember that when we were driving his car to Seattle for him to Is start this another his another
2: trip I wasn't invited to. Y-
0: yes. Uh well, okay. it was it was tough. It was in his little car. And uh we were taking it one way to Seattle, but we stopped in Las Vegas and he wanted to know how to play craps. And the worst thing that happened was he won, he non- won. nonstop over and over and over. And by the last day, cause Cheryl was doing uh had a class there, so she had flown there ahead of time, then she road tripped the rest of the way with us. Cheryl and I kept remarking, we're like, this isn't good. If we leave Vegas and Nick just is only one at craps, he's got the wrong message. <laughs> and so the last day I had to get our show ready. So I went back up to the hotel room and I had won a bunch of money and uh, I, I opened up the door and Cheryl goes, how's it going? And I said, uh, he stayed down there and we're both killing it. She goes, oh God. He comes up 45 minutes later and he's like, we got to leave right now. Why? He got slaughtered.
1: And we're like, yeah. oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. What up, trivia buffs? I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's time for your favorite part of the show, the part where I wow you with my knowledge of mataz stuff. So the, the term boss, you know, is, everybody knows this, but I'll just put it out there. It's derived from the Dutch word "boss." baas. Many A's in there, they apparently don't know how to spell anyway. It means master, uh, a title given to a captain on a ship. And while we know that in the past many ships' captains were male, the captain of this here boat is Joe's mom, and sometimes she throws us in the brig for an hour or so and makes us walk the poop deck not sure what that is either but just wanted to say poop deck cuz it's so fun. Anyway, well, speaking of women who are captains, what was the name of a woman who was an Irish-born pirate captain sailing the Caribbean in the early 1700s uh, who was one of the most famous female pirates of all time? Like in the the list of all the female pirates, she's way up there right, you know, right near the top there. Uh, I'll give you a couple of clues. Here we go. The little that is known of her life comes largely from Captain Charles Johnson's book, A General History of the Pirates. That guy also doesn't know how to spell because he used a Y in there. It was in the Bahamas that she met Calico Jack Rackham. That dude can party. Anyway, she became his pirate partner and lover. She was captured alongside Rackham and Mary Reed in October 1720. By now you should have this. I mean, I'm giving you like practically giving you the answer, but what was the pirate's name? What was her name? I'll be back with your answer after I hang up the laundry, something Joe's mom calls putting up the sales. A lot of confusion
0: out there, OG, about alternative investment classes. And I will agree they are not for everyone. However, it's gotten a lot easier to invest in many Areas where you haven't been able to invest in the past because of fintech companies like Masterworks. Masterworks is a members only club for investing in art. What I like about Masterworks is this historically, if you look at different asset classes over long periods of time, art has been remarkably stable in terms of price points on art. And if you stick with the Masters, it's one of those few asset classes that historically like stocks or real estate have beaten inflation. Of course, when you buy a painting, you actually own that painting. So you really want to know how it works before you get in. Art though, top performing asset class again in 2018. It's not going to be a top performing asset class every year, but historically, something you haven't been able to do. Here's how it works. When you invest in Masterworks, your money goes toward purchasing one of the masters. And unlike some of the art funds that have cropped up out there, you actually know exactly which painting you're purchasing. And Masterworks buys it. Now, they buy it. They maintain it. They do all of the work. Then they sell the painting down the road. To give you an idea of how Masterworks works, ah, Masterworks works, get it? Masterworks recently sold out the Andy Warhol offering, and they have a Banksy offering that is uh, selling out quickly right now. So names that even those of you that don't really follow art, I'm sure you've heard of both of those artists. For more on Masterworks and a bypass, by the way, they're, they have this massive waiting list. You can bypass that by visiting masterworks.io and then click the box to let them know that Stacky Benjamin set you and you will skip the waiting list. That's masterworks.io for more.
1: Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm back with today's trivia answer. I feel like I should like arg or something like that. But anyway, we're looking for the name of a pirate who was in the Caribbean or caribbean you know whichever way you go in that direction just after 1700 she was slated to be executed alongside another woman mary reed so what was her name this super famous female pirate we're talking about none other than the irish-born pirate anne bonnie anne bonnie but you knew that right while both she and reed were sentenced to death their executions were stayed because both of them were pregnant Reed died in jail in early 1721, but Bonnie's fate, we don't know. It's unknown. Bonnie's fate is unknown. I'd like to share more, but Joe's mom, uh, she says, going ashore for grub, as they say, which means it's time for me to get her Harley out of the garage, kind of shine it all up, fuel it all up so she can give me a ride down to the Sizzler. See ya!
0: I've got one more headline here that uh, we hopefully can dive into this is from investment news. You know, 20,000 people, OG, uh, roughly at GE, just had their pension frozen. So a lot of these people may have the opportunity to take it as a lump sum. Now this piece is written by Greg Iacurci. factors to consider before taking a pension buyout. Greg writes, it's a challenging calculation that involves several unknown variables. Greg writes, GE's the latest company offer pension buyout to former employees as it tries to shore up its pension plans, which were $27 billion underfunded as of year-end 2018. <laughs> just a few bucks. $27 billion. Yeah, just write a check. The company's offering lump sum payments to 100,000 former employees in addition to freezing its pension plan for 20000 Several factors financial advisors need to weigh for clients who are approached with uh, such an offer from GE and any other employer – There'll be a mathematical side, but there'll also be a more qualitative, big-picture side. Matt Cosgriff, Wealth Management Group, leader at Bergen KDV Wealth Management, said of the pension buyout variables. The first consideration, they say, is to understand the terms of a buyout. Buyouts often come in the form of a lump sum that represents the present value of an employee's future pension payment. So, in other words, the first thing we got to do, OG, is take a look at this lump sum and what rate of return do we have to make so that we can replicate if this was a pension and you got the same amount from the company?
2: The good news is that it's usually based on relatively safe interest rates. So it's based on 10-year treasuries, 15, you know, 20-year treasuries, one-year treasuries, and they kind of put it all together in what's called a PPA rate. But anyways, because interest rates are so low right now, the government or the pension calculation people are assuming that you can't get good guaranteed returns Therefore, they've got to give you a higher amount of money because your interest rate's going to be lower. That makes sense. Like it's a kind of a teeter-totter thing. If you got huge returns guaranteed, then you'd need less money because you're going to get more interest. Right. In, In this case, you get low interest, so you need more cash to offset that. So you'll get a
0: bigger chunk of money, bigger lump sum.
2: Yeah. Then then if the interest rates were really high right now, you'd get lower amounts.
0: And then you just compare that. You ask them for a calculation of how much money you'd get, different variables. And I think the second thing to do then is if you like the pension calculation to see if you can replicate that yourself. Don't you do that?
2: Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. Firstly is what's the dollar amount? The next thing is, is you want to figure out how are you going to plan on living on that? What's your distribution strategy? Because when it's working in a big pension plan, when there's thousands, in this case, hundreds of thousands of people, there's other people who are taking money out. There's people putting money in. There's the fact that somebody got their pension for three months and then died unexpectedly. There's people that live to be 105. The difference is, is that in your case, you're completely unique with you. So they might have averaged you and said, well, the average person lives to be 85. So that's what we calculated it based on. And you're going, yeah, but my grandpa lived to be 103. So I'm going to need that money a lot longer in theory. So maybe the company pension is going to work out better because they expect you to be out of money by the time you're at 85. That's how they build the calculation because you're average. But when you take yourself out of the average, you got to just deal with you and what your expectations are.
0: They also talk about if you take the lump sum, you also might be able to do a Roth conversion, like there's tax considerations. But it also says in this piece, one advisor is quoted as saying that's largely second. I think that's way down the list of things to to think about.
2: Well, I mean, if you worked at GE for 30 years and made any reasonable amount of money and they're offering you a pension buyout, your pension buyout is going to be $700,000. It's rather unlikely that you're going to take all seven hundred grand and convert it to a Roth IRA today.
0: (laughs) Bam! (laughs) Imagine that tax bill.
2: Yeah, and if you do, someone didn't explain the fact that you're going to owe the G three three stacks, three large stacks.
0: Yeah, there's the GE. Not
2: three stacks. The three stacks are like that's three thousand. Three large stacks is three hundred thousand. So
0: you get money from the GE and you give it back to the G. That just doesn't. Yeah, that's ugly. I think our lessons, our takeaways today are these. Man, lots of takeaways. First time ever, we've done four headlines. That's fun. First is this idea of indexing. I think there's a lot to unpack there before you just mindlessly put your money in an index. I think you still have to know what you're doing because when the market doesn't act the way it does now, You need to know why you did it so that you stay the course. Second, retiring in a different country. Understand the rules around how you get your money back if there's an embezzlement like there was in this case. Every country has their own rules. And I think knowing that and keeping up with your statements, uh, which in this case, these people didn't do. So
2: tired of hearing people
0: who go, well, I just let old Betsy take care of it for me. It seemed to be going great. She was so nice. Uh, Third, university endowments. Doing the right thing. By diversifying, staying diversified. That's being like mom says good steward of money. And they're getting beaten up in the press by it, even though they did the right thing. And then last you have a pension buyout. It's a lot more than just looking at that lump sum of money and going, yeah, it looks good to me. Might be a little bit of math involved. Hey, let's throw out the Haven lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven life insurance agency, they put what you value first. Cool. Fall air. Finally. Oh, fantastic. And pumpkin spice lattes. No. Yeah. Come on. It's actually your loved ones and your time. It's why they made buying quality term life insurance simple. If you go to stackbenjamins.com forward slash havenlife, you're gonna find that doing the right thing and getting your life insurance in order now instead of waiting on it, super easy. No reason to procrastinate. I just took a test OG that said that if I'm given forms or contracts to sign. I will procrastinate like it was, it was very, very, very specific. It also told me that I shouldn't do small appliance repair. Very specific about things that I should not You're like, do sold. Yes. Yeah, so I need to go to Haven life forward slash Haven life. And you'll find the application super simple. It's online. You get it done with prices are affordable and you know that they're backed by a company with a lot of experience, mass mutual, more than 160 year old insurer today. Our call comes to us all the way from Germany. Say hello, Germany.
1: Hey, Mr. Saucy. Hi. Hey, Mr. G. Or since nobody's listening. Hey, Joe. Hey, OG. This is Jan from Germany. I got a quick question regarding diversification. From what I learned so far from your awesome show is that I have to diversify my portfolio between different asset classes that are not correlated with each other or not very much, at least. How about currencies? Should I also invest in different currencies like the euro or the yen or should I have all my assets in US dollar? What is safer for my retirement? Thank you for your help and I swear I haven't learned anything so far. How
0: about that? All the way from Germany. Thanks for the question, Jan. Glad that you're listening. You and I were just looking at this. Oh, gee, we're in 47 different countries. Just so
2: freaking stupid.
0: (laughs) How how do you have two listeners and you're in 47 different countries? Yeah. I don't uh, know. Jan and, and, and one other person. But uh, but it's funny. they travel a lot. That's right. It's funny how his his question comes up at the same time that, that most of our episode today is about this very topic. Let's talk about currencies. Og, does he hold different currencies as well to belay that risk?
2: I think that uh, there's a little bit more emphasis on this in other countries because you know he's experienced different currencies even in his lifetime. Probably, of course, in the U.S. That's really not a thing. You know, we've always had the dollar and it's used largely internationally. You can use it in a lot of places. So we don't really think about it too much. The problem with currency hedging slash investing is that it's almost like you're betting that the main corpus of your money has to go down for this little part of your money to go up. I think if you have a strong likelihood of traveling to other places or being in other places for an extended period of time. It's like I live in Europe. There's a good chance I'm also going to spend half my time in the U S then you start getting into the situation where it makes sense to have money in both places because you're not going to be at the whim of whatever the currency rates are when you travel or have to buy goods and services in different places. But if it's purely for investment purposes, I just say stick with what you know The biggest thing I would advise, as it relates to diversification, is everyone has a strong home bias. I was talking to a really large investment firm in Canada. Canada represents about three and a half percent of the world's output of the world's GDP, and I asked him. I said, "Is home bias a really big deal? Do most investors in Canada only buy Canadian stocks, Canadian mutual funds, funds that are you know about companies in Canada?" And he said, "It's insane." Most investors in Canada invest all their money in Canadian companies. And so we see this in other countries. Again, in the U.S., we can sign off on it a little bit more because we have a lot more output relative to the world than other countries. But you see in other countries, like if you're German, if you're Danish, if you're Italian, a lot of your investments are in those countries because you know everything about that. And I think being diversified will pay off better.
0: I really like your statement about if you're going to be in that country, because when I had uh, clients from other places, we'd always get this question. Do I transfer all my money to the U S do I keep it uh, in that country? And if you're definitely going back to that country, I love it. I think it, it introduces a whole different layer of complexity OG for people that aren't going to be there. So, you know, he's talking about the yen, like if I'm, if I'm not going to be in Japan and I'm just trying to manipulate currencies against each other, How do you even keep up with that? Yeah. I think you could, but your cost-benefit analysis is incredibly low, unless you're going to be there. Thanks for the question, Jan. Thanks for listening, by the way. That's going to do it for today. Thank you, everybody, for hanging out with us again on a glorious Wednesday. On Boss's Day, say hello and be nice to your boss today, even though OG thinks he's the boss. I think I will be nice to mom. Speaking of OG, if you are looking for better help with your financial picture in 2020, it's that time to start planning it. And OG and his team are ready for new clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will take you to their schedule and better money management. All right, Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned
1: today? Well, Joe, I'll tell you what they should have learned today. First, take some advice from Harvard and other universities. Loading up on one asset class just because it's been rocking lately, dude, it's not a great idea. Think longer term. Second, moving to another country, understand their laws before depositing money into any institution or bank. You won't have the same controls as you have in your home country. But the big lesson. It is not a good idea to call a woman bossy to her face. So apparently now I'm buying down at happy hour for like the entire bridge club. So uh, just come on down and join us because I'm buying anyways. Got coupons. It's all good. Don't worry. Special thanks to you for your suggested headlines for today's show. Have something you'd like us to discuss Head to stackingbenjamins.com and hit the questions for the show button at the top of the page. This show was created by Joe Salcihi, produced by Richie Rutter reese and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at sbenjaminscast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days.
0: Well, we're rolling into Oscar season now, and with that, Cheryl and I, OG, are Oscar busy. the
2: Grouch season?
0: Oscar the Grouch, yes. You can tell what age your kids are when you make comments like that.
2: I haven't seen a Sesame Street I mean, since I was a kid. We don't watch it at all.
0: Yeah, none of that in my house, none of that learning. Can't have that. We talked about Ad Astra last week. And about how Brad Pitt, I think, might be up for some stuff. There might be some visual effects stuff. Here's another one that's been talked about a lot. Uh, we just uh, the movie about Judy Garland called Judy. I'm
2: sorry it's so late. Miss Carl. Oh, please, I'm Judy. I'm very sorry, but your suite has been released.
0: What do you mean released? Where exactly is it gone?
2: <laughs> your account was in arrears. Don't go to
0: sleep now. No, 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 no the other one. The kids need a home, Judy. I know what kids need. They need their mother.
2: can't have the world's greatest entertainer out here without a drink.
0: Frank Sinatra's here?
1: Frank is great, but he is no Judy Garla. I don't have a home.
0: I can't even get a
1: manager. London would offer you a lot of money. Talk of the town is desperate to do a deal with you.
0: You're saying I have to leave my children if I want to make
1: enough money to be with my children? Very much
0: like to stay. The very latest uh, picture about another superstar, this time Judy Garland, played by Renee Zellweger. You see the previews for this one? No, No, not not at all.
2: (laughs) This does not sound like my kind of movie.
0: I feel like the previews were all over the place for this movie. This starts off with her late in her career. As you heard at the beginning of that clip, her uh, financial picture is horrible. She's seen as impossible to work with. And they go through a few clips from very early in her career when she was, of course, Dorothy on uh, The Wizard of Oz and a career-defining role and somebody who everybody remembers her as. Every time you see Judy Garland, I think the very first thing you think is, Dorothy. But it doesn't spend a lot of time there. It really focuses on her late in life and this trip she made to London, desperately trying to make some money so that she can try to get back in her kid's life and and get her act together. As a movie, I thought it was entertaining, uh, but it definitely wasn't one of the best movies that I've ever seen. I wasn't incredibly moved by it. I liked sitting in the theater. I liked watching the two hours. I feel horribly bad for Judy Garland and the life you live in that time frame When you were one of those early movie stars in the mid 1900s, like she wasn't allowed to eat. It's kind of like we do with you here. You know, we make sure that you don't eat, that you show up on time. And then it comes out in other ways. And by the time she's in her mid forties, she's a wreck. She's popping pills to stay awake. She's popping pills to go to sleep. People say bad things about her. And she immediately goes off the deep end because she's been told things are her fault for so long. When things go wrong, she also, when things go right, she thinks it's not her ability to continue to work. She thinks it's this talent pool that's running out and she's afraid that she's going to go on the stage the next time and it's not going to be there. Which is funny because I'm reading a book, by the way, Kathy in our Facebook group, the basement Facebook group, turned me on to this uh, book by Dina Castor, who's who's a great distance runner. Dina, early in her career, thought the same thing, that her running sprang from this talent pool. And it wasn't her hard work, but she thought that someday she might go out to the track or go out to the cross-country course and it's not going to be there anymore and that leads to neuroses julie garland's case led to alcoholism pills abusing a lot of drugs so a decent movie what i'll say is this while i thought the movie was good and not phenomenal maybe top 20 renee zellweger amazing as judy garland just a minute. The, hmm. the only Renee Zellweger thing she did that I can't stand Renee has this thing where she purses her lips, right? She does this lip thing that drives me crazy. I don't recall Judy Garland ever doing that. I always recall Renee Zellweger doing it. And in this case, I see Judy Garland, not Renee Zellweger, but it's Judy Garland pursing her lips in that annoying way that Renee Zellweger does. <laughs> and And so besides the lip pursing thing, she was amazing. I, I can totally see she's going to be up for best actress for this. If she's not up for it, I don't know why. So if you want to see a phenomenal portrayal of Judy Garland, uh, you're a fan or you're a fan of those early movies or 1940s, 50s, 60s, uh, superstars, Judy Garland, clearly a top superstar. Judy thumb up.
2: How many explosions?
0: Uh, they have some fireworks at the end when it's her birthday. No. Ah,
2: so zero. When they got, got
0: when they got married. She gets married for the fifth time in the movie. So uh, we, yeah. We, we, when she gets- And the ex-
2: Explodometer has got half a bomb? It's- uh, you know, the, On the, the one to five bombs rating?
0: The dude's trying to light them and he has trouble and they end up all blowing up like it once. So, okay. So one and a half- very exciting Explosions. moment. Yes. This is an action film. I think that one scene <laughs> classifies this as a total action thriller. That yes. plus
2: the tank she rides in in one of the scenes.
0: And you could even say that because of the fact that she's so hard to work with that it's you know there's there's some uh suspense there and like she's robbing a bank, we'll say. Got it. Robbing okay. some rich people, so. So
2: yes. it's a bank robbery sci-fi explosion uh, R.L. Schwarzenegger explosion movie. I'm in.
0: About Judy Garland. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a few songs sprinkled in between. (laughs) I think we completely perverted that one. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine...